0: Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 17. John chapter 17 as we continue to look at the actual Lord's Prayer You know, if you really want to get to know someone in life, if you want to know not just who they portray themselves to be, but who they really are, you need to listen to them when they pray. Not the type of prayer that often accompanies church events. So many times, these times that we gather together have served as an opportunity for someone to be able to astound everybody with their vocabulary when they pray. When I was younger, I'll never ever ever forget as a child waiting on the, there would always be one gentleman who would be asked to pray over the offertory prayer and you would think we must be doing really bad in finances this year because this person is praying over this uh, offering for a very, very long time. Not to say that long prayer is wrong, but oftentimes when we gather, or we, we kind of think things through, and when we pray many times, unfortunately, it's more performative than something of substance. So I'm not saying listen to someone when they pray out loud, and, and then you'll discover who they are. I'm saying if you really listen to someone, When they're really praying, prayer in which all guards are down, prayer that is authentic and open. You know, I'll say this, if you want to know more about your own life and your walk with Jesus, you should listen to your own prayers. What is your prayer life like? Is it infrequent? Is it filled with shallow prayers and requests? Does it surround your own desires? If God were to grant all of your prayers from this past week, in this very moment, how many people would have come to know Jesus? How many sins in your life would have been slayed and put underneath his authority? How much more submitted to Jesus would you be if he answered your prayers from just this week? You can learn a lot about yourself if you just listen in to your own prayer life. And we learn a lot, an awful lot about Jesus as we come to this final public prayer before his persecution. This prayer often referred to as his high priestly prayer. We learn an awful lot about the heart of Jesus Last week as we looked at the first five verses as he began his prayer, we just began to see his priority. What what prompted Jesus, what was a priority in his earthly ministry was the glory of the Father. Every single thing he did out of obedience to the Father, every single thing he did was to accomplish the plan of salvation for mankind devised by the Father And the Trinity in eternity's past. Last week we saw his priority, God's glory, his purpose to bring salvation to mankind. We saw that he was looking forward in verse 5 to rejoining the Father in heaven. In that place where there is eternal joy and fellowship between the two. Now I want you to notice the subject of this last vocal prayer before his hour. And we'll we'll begin in verse 6 and then go through verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Remember Jesus is praying. He says, I have manifested your name to the people that you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, you know all other prayers fall so terribly short of the glory we find in this passage, in this chapter and I know and I'm very well aware right now of my own inadequacies and inabilities to be able to communicate the truth and the glory of your word Lord I can't make you look more beautiful in this passage than you already are the only thing I can ever really do is serve as distraction so Father Lord remove me Lord now from this equation and I pray that by your spirit you would speak through me your word your people so we might see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Jesus, so that all hearts and ears and eyes may be opened, so that the lost would be saved and the saved would be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the point of highest stress in his life, when all of the world had begun to turn away from him... His own father preparing to turn his face away from Jesus as he would hang upon the cross. What is the subject of the prayer and the final prayers of Jesus? What is the subject? If we are given some final moments in life and some persecution awaits us, I would venture to say that most of us, our eyes and our hearts would be turned toward ourselves. Lord, please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. Perhaps this would be an opportunity for us to be selfish. But notice here, as Jesus faces the cross, as he is in the very shadow of the cross, as the footsteps of the soldiers are in the background making their way through the garden of Gethsemane to come and to arrest him and to falsely charge him and to beat him and then to take him to the cross and to murder him. As all of this is right on his mind and, and as all of this is right in front of his face, you and I were on his heart. In the face of all of this, unfortunately, Pain and agony We were the subject Of his prayers You would think That for one moment He would have taken his eye off Off of the ball That for one moment He would have just concentrated Exclusively upon himself But Jesus displays Once again His great power In the midst of this weakness, by being resolved to continue to the cross, us still on his mind and in his heart. Any other person would have thought of themselves. And while Jesus has prayed for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see clearly we were on his heart. His disciples were clearly on his heart. At his most vulnerable and weakest, we were on his mind. Now, I want you to notice with me how he prays for his disciples and how he prays even for us. Now, next week, as we look at the close of this passage, you'll see especially how he prays for us, the church. But this passage today also speaks not just to the disciples, but for us as well. This prayer is a prayer of safekeeping. It's one of the most prominent words in our passage today. I want you to see the first way that he will pray for us in verses 6 through 12. He prays that we would be kept in his name, that the Father would keep us in his name. Now, this will take a little while to build up to. We see it evident here in verse 6, but. It's going to slowly unfold, and then by verse 11, he will explicitly say, I'm praying, Father, that you would keep them in my name. Let's watch it unfold. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus is praying to the Father, and the first thing he says here with regards to his people in our passage is that he has revealed his name Now when you read this passage, when you read this verse, your mind almost goes back to Exodus chapter 3. Do you remember Exodus chapter 3? Moses has fled Egypt. Meanwhile, God's people are still in bondage in the land of Egypt. And Moses is now out shepherding in the middle of nowhere. When he sees up in the hills, up in the mountain, a bush that is on fire... But it's not being consumed. So Moses turns aside to go and see this fire. And as he approaches the bush, as he approaches this place, the voice of God speaks out from this burning bush. Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes because the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then God says to Moses, I've heard the cry of my people and their cry for help, and I'm coming to save them, and I'm going to send you back to Egypt to rescue my people. One of the first questions that Moses will ask God is the second question. One of the questions he's going to ask him is, God, who should I tell them is sending me? Because you see, back in Egypt, we got a lot of names for a lot of different Gods with a little g, a lowercase g, a lot of names of gods in Egypt that each represent different things and different aspects of life. Who should I I know you're telling me that you're the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, but if they ask me who the name is, what should I tell them? And God says, I am who I am. He reveals to Moses his name Yahweh Jehovah I am who I am not the God who merely was or not just the God who merely will become or not at all the God who will become but the God who always is the unchanging one the all-powerful one you tell them that Yahweh is coming to get them, and from that moment we we learn the the personal name of God, and now Jesus comes to the earth many years later, and he is revealing to them his name, the character, the holiness of God. You see when Jesus came to the earth and revealed his and manifested god 's name to his people, he went beyond just the the having a title and became personal. Jesus coming to earth shows us that our God is a personal God. He isn't some God distant from mankind, uncaring about your personal struggles and strives, uncaring about your passions, uncaring about you as an individual. He is a God who is personal Jesus says father I've come to this earth and I have manifested your name to your people. Whom you gave me out of the world. He continues yours they were. And you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Yours they were and you have given them to me and they have kept your word. It's not a mystery to God those who belong to him. The disciples may have seemed like an odd choice for the God of the universe to choose as followers. They'd already been passed up by the religious elite, marked off as less than, not as smart. They were tax collectors, fishermen, less than people. They couldn't fit underneath the rabbi. They weren't the smartest people around. So why would they possibly Be the followers of Jesus when he came to this earth. But it was no surprise to God those who belonged to him. Absolutely no surprise to him. Jesus says of his disciples, of his people, yours they were, past tense, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. They're not strangers to God. Foreknown by God, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now every time I mention those Baptist curse words such as predestined or election, I always have to put that asterisk there and remind you that we're not taking away the responsibility of mankind to repent of their sins and to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Every time that I mention those words, inevitably, there are people who say, well, I just don't believe that. I'm not here saying today that there are people on this earth who will repent of their sins, but they are not elected, so they will not get into heaven. That's not what he is saying here. He's saying that he knew who is his. He knows who is his. He's always known. He says here, Father, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed That you sent me. While the rest of the world was rejecting Jesus, Jesus is here telling the Father what he already knows. But he's telling the Father, they have accepted me. While the world rejects me, they have embraced me. They don't embrace me as just a prophet or a good person or a good man or a good teacher. But my people accept me for who I am as being from you, the one and only Son of God. Let me tell you something here today. Let me remind you that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And you don't get to heaven by acknowledging that he's a good teacher. Many religions count Jesus as a good teacher. You don't get to heaven by acknowledging that he was a good person Many teachings teach that Jesus was a good person. You don't get to heaven by believing those things, but by putting your faith and trust that he is the one and only son of God sent to this earth, perfect to take upon the weight of his shoulders your sin, the wrath of God upon his shoulders for your sin and for mine. He is the one and only Son of God. Jesus says, they acknowledge this. All of the rest of Israel, all of the rest of the world seem not to. But I've given them your words, and they've received them, and have come to know that I am from you. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours Now, notice here that Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. This is not to say that he has never done that in his ministry on earth. That is not to say that he does not love the world. God loves the world. Explicitly stated throughout the scripture prominently in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. God loves the world, but here in his final prayer, Jesus is paying special attention to those who are his, to those who have repented and believed and called upon him. He's praying for them. He knows the pain that that they are about to go through, and he is lifting them up. Verse 11 now, I want you to notice the the real point of what we've been moving towards since verse 6, and I am no longer in the world. Jesus is going away, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. He says, I'm going away, but I'm asking of you, Father that you would keep them. He would go on to say, I have kept them. I have guarded them. I have taken care of them. But, Father, now as I go away, Lord, I'm asking you, Father, keep them in your name. Now, this means a lot of things. It's going to cover what we're going to mention in our second point. He's going to keep us from evil, protect us, to guard us. But what I like to think of when I read this passage, what really strikes me is when he says, keep them in your name. I I feel like he's saying, keep them in our family. Keep that last name on. Now, I am very thankful to be the father of two wonderful children. I love my children. I, I give uh, illustrations about them all the time. And I'm running out of time, by the way, to give illustrations and be unscathed at home. Just so you know, I like giving illustrations, but the time is coming close. I mean, it's coming to an end where I can just give all the illustrations I want to. I love my children. And I can't think of anything. Lord, I pray that nothing would happen in my life. I can't think of anything that would keep me from loving them and being proud of them. nothing, nothing can take away that they are mine. They are my children. My, my daddy used to say to me all the time, it's silly, but he used to say, I don't call you son because you shine. I call you son because you mine. And as much of an embarrassment as I may be to the Hall family, I will always be a Hall. And here, Jesus is saying to the Father, keep them in the family. He knows all that awaits them. But he's saying, Lord, Father, keep them in the family. Jesus, in his last moments, is caring about us staying in the family. It's not, not us, by the way, that keeps ourselves saved. It's not us that keeps ourselves in the family. It's the work of our God. You did not earn salvation. I did not earn salvation. We can't keep it. It is God who has given it to us and he keeps us. Jesus will say in John chapter 10 in verse 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hey, friends, today, if you've repented of your sins and called upon Jesus, I want you to know. It's a part of his prayer here, but it's really good theology. You have been placed inside of his hands, and nothing can take you outside of those hands. Nothing. Now you say, Josh, you won't believe how I failed this week. You won't believe the things and how I've messed up this week. There's no way he can keep me. Listen, it's not based upon your merits. It's based upon his strength and his power. If it was based upon your love, if it was based upon your ability, yes, you would be lost a thousand times over. You could have never regained it. I would have been in the same backseat with you on that same road to destruction. But when we're placed inside his hands, the Bible says no one can snatch them out. No one can snatch them out of my hands. Jesus prays, Lord, keep them in the family. Keep them in your name. Keep them faithful. Keep them following after you. Keep them in the family. Secondly, I want you to see in verses 13 through 15, Jesus prays that we be kept safe from the evil one. Look with me in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I'm praying to you. I'm praying out loud so that they can hear, so that my joy may be fulfilled in themselves. Now, let's say that you're going through a difficult time in your life. If someone in the church comes to you and says, hey, I just want you to know I've been praying for you. I love you, and I've been praying for you. And you know that that person meant it. They just weren't saying it. They didn't just notice that you were down and come up and try to encourage you. You know that they meant it. Did that not bring some level of encouragement and joy in your life? And now here's Jesus, not just anybody. Here's Jesus himself praying to the Father. And he says, I'm saying these things so that... My joy may be fulfilled in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We've learned this before, that Jesus says the world hates them. The world hates Jesus. The world hates the Father. The world hates us. And Jesus says here, we are in the world, but not of the world. You know, I thought, and many people have thought many times before, wouldn't it have been great had you come to know Jesus and were saved, and immediately after you are baptized, you are in heaven. How awesome would that be? That would be great. You'd know nothing of the struggles and the pains of sin in, in this life after your salvation. You would have gone immediately to be with him. But as we'll see at the end of our passage today, he has left us here for a purpose. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. The church, many times men and women, boys and girls who claim to be followers of Jesus look a lot more like the world and they look like the Word says they're supposed to look. Jesus says here, we are in the world, but not of the world. We love the people of the world, but we don't love the wicked system of the world. Jesus doesn't ask that we be taken out of the world, not yet, but that we be kept safe from the evil one. That we be kept safe from Satan and from the... All of his armies of, of demons, he has already taught us to pray. Lead us not into t- to temptation, but deliver us from evil. But this time Jesus himself is praying, Lord, keep them from the evil one. Protect them. Put your arms around them. Put your hands around them. Keep them from his tactics. Keep them from him. He knows that the enemy has relentlessly pursued God's people from the beginning of time. From the Garden of Eden to right outside of the Garden of Eden with Cain and Abel. All throughout the Old Testament in Abraham's life, the enemy was after him. In David's life, the enemy was after him. And Jesus' own life at the beginning of his ministry, Satan came to tempt Jesus. Jesus knew well the tactics of the enemy. He knew well that Satan is an enemy. He is a thief and a liar. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. He knows that he is an adversary that, that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he prays for our protection. Lord, put your hand upon them. Protect them from the evil one. He prays. That we be kept from the evil one. Now finally, I want you to see that he prays that we be kept in truth. Verses 16 through 18. That we be kept in the truth. Verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Notice how Jesus prays here for us. He's prayed that we would be protected from the evil one. He's prayed here that we be kept secure in his name. And now he is praying that we would be set apart, sanctified, consecrated, that we would be set apart in the truth. Now how does Jesus ask that we would be sanctified in our passage today? Does he do it by our conscience? Lord, sanctify them by their conscience. By their heart. Now we we live in a world where we've been taught just follow your heart. Follow your desires. Follow what feels good. Who you are. Who you were born to be. And I say to you, no, the scripture says to you, don't you dare follow your heart. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end result is death. Your heart will lead you down a road that you do not want to go. The Bible tells us of our heart that it is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Does Jesus say, consecrate them, sanctify them by their own hearts, what their conscience tells them to do? No. Sanctified by their love? We as God's people are to love one another. The world will know that we are his by our love for one another. But are we sanctified merely in love? No. Verse 17. Sanctify then in truth. Your word is truth. That's the importance of hiding God's word in our heart. That's the importance of valuing time alone with God daily in his word. Jesus here asks for God to sanctify us through his word. Now you may be saying, Josh, I've struggled with these sins all my life. You're gonna and by the way, we're gonna struggle with sin all of our lives. That's true. That's not an excuse to continue on with sin. You're gonna struggle all of your life. You say, Josh, I I keep having this struggle with sin in my life, and you've you've not opened up the pages. Of God's Word, you've not hidden it in your heart. And Jesus says, Lord, this is how I'm asking you to set apart my people in your Word. Not by your heart, not by what they want to do, but that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of God's Word into our hearts and to change us. God's Word is our authority. God's Word is. Our standard for how we ought to live. It doesn't matter if it's countercultural today. It doesn't matter if the whole world says that's just a book written for another time and another people. It doesn't matter. I would rather be a part of the culture of Christ than any other culture that exists in this world or ever has. And in that culture, this word is supreme. In the culture, God has exalted his word even above his own name. And this is how we are sanctified. This is how we are brought near. Are you struggling with sin in your life? Hide God's word in your heart. Adore God's word. Love God's word. Seek him early in the morning. At lunchtime, be thinking about His Word. Write His Word down on little note cards and memorize those note cards. And at nighttime, as you're laying down to sleep, think about all that He has said to you in His Word and He will sanctify you. That is, He will set you apart. He'll take His Spirit and put to death the things of the flesh in your life. Jesus praise for his people. Lord, keep them. I'm begging that you keep them in my name. I'm begging that you keep them in the truth by sanctifying them. By drawing them closer to you in your word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light in my path. It's been true of every generation It's ever existed but we live in a wicked world. And if you go by their system, you're going to be led down the wrong paths. However, the scripture says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Listen, do you want to be a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better wife? Do you want to be a better citizen? Do you want to be a better follower of Jesus? It's not going to come from your self-help or your self-discipline, but God will sanctify you through his word. Young families, listen to me. Young families, make the reading and the study of God's word a priority in your family. Talk about it. Think about God's Word out loud. Talk about what it has meant and how it has guided you. Listen to me, older generations. Invest that continuously in your children and in your grandchildren. Invest that in your work. Invest that amongst your friends. Because it is Scripture that brings sanctification in our lives. Verse 18 Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, Father, as you sent me into the world to provide salvation for mankind, so I have sent them into the world. God has given us a commission, a purpose for living. If today you have repented of your sins and called upon Jesus, the Bible says that you are born again, you are saved, you are a child of the King, and you are left here on this earth, not for some random purpose, but to go out and to proclaim the goodness of God to all those who are around you. Why, that would make me enemies of a lot of people. Well, that's just fine. The world's going to hate you. They're going to hate you anyways. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate you. Their only hope, our only hope in life and death is Jesus. He's our only hope. There is no other hope provided for mankind. We pray for our friends who are sick that they won't die. And, Lord, friends, as we gather together and pray, we ought to pray for those who are sickly around us. We ought to pray for those who are enduring hardships. But, my friends, every person who is ever born will die. It's going to happen. And the only hope they have is Jesus. And maybe the only chance they have to hear about Jesus is from you. You may be saying, I don't know what God has me on this earth for. Born again believer, I'm telling you, we know what he has you on this earth for. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Not just to the disciples, It wasn't just a commission to the disciples, to those 11 who had remained faithful to him. It's to his church, to his people. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He says, you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Notice the heart of Jesus. Set apart so that we could be set apart. Now we were lost in our sins. We deserved death. We deserved hell. Not just you. Me. Every one of us. We had rebelled against God. Our sin earned for us. One singular sin earned death and hell and separation from him forever and ever. Ever. But God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to come to this earth to live a perfect life and to take upon His shoulders our sin. He was set apart so that we could be set apart. He was crucified so that we could live. And He rose again so that we could be with Him forever and ever in that place where there is no more death or pain or tears or sin. When I look at the last prayer of Jesus, I see a prayer of safekeeping. Jesus praying for you. Father, keep them. Keep them safe. Keep them in the family. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in the truth. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.